For the love of money, Hi-Fi Radio with Wolfgang Klein. Talk Radio, AM 640. Ah, good morning. The band was war. Recorded in 1975. Low, ra, duh. That's live. Wolfgang Klein here, your host. Jack Hartle, your co-host in the studio. Good morning. Happy Saturday. And it is Remembrance Day. Lest we forget, hey, Jack? Jack was a military man, uh, captain in the uh, reserves. Yeah, with the Lawrence Scots for 10 years. And I remember every Remembrance Day, you used to take the day off and said, Wolf, I have to go march the boys. They tell us about that. Uh, it, was, it was a good experience being in the reserves, for sure. Um, out now for a couple of years, but uh, had a good time. And Remembrance Day was certainly a day to uh, you know, uh, pay our respects to, uh, to past service members. And uh, you, you then had to lead the troops in Brampton, downtown Brampton, a little march every, every yeah, Remembrance Day? Yeah, there's a Remembrance Day parade, for sure. And the troops followed you wherever you directed them to go? Uh, correct. And so if you took an incorrect left, they would follow you left? <laughs> yeah, I had to get the make sure I knew what the uh, parade route was before we started, for sure. <laughs> you're up for the job, Jack. Yeah, you're a good fellow, a good Canadian. Um, indeed. Well, it is Remembrance Day, and uh, it's Hi-Fi Radio, Saturday morning. Kevin Muir is in the studio, author of The Macro Tourist. Uh, Lo Rad was put in the show for the uranium trade. Uh, you gave us a trade, and Jack and I went long your trade. We bought you. Uh, I remember buying uranium stocks with Jack back in, 19, excuse me, back in 2006, 2007, uh, and Fukushima occurred, and it began to unravel. We, we had time to get out, and we got out, and thank goodness we got out, and it just kept cascading lower and lower and lower. But then uh, the macro tourists pointed us back to the trade as we kept our loose eye on it for the last 10 years. And let's go long, we said. And we are now long. And are we up or down or are we even on that trade so far, Jack? I'm going to say we're even on the trade, but it, it, I say cer- we're down it certainly had a good move. I think yours is a penny. I think yeah. we're off a penny on it. But hey, who's going to split here? Uh, we're not in it for a penny. <laughs> yeah. We're not in it for a penny. It's very, very true. Um, so uh, Kevin, welcome to the show once again. Well, thanks. Great to be with you guys. Yeah. So uh, let's talk a little bit about uranium. Uh, there, there was a uranium mania. Uh, my friend Jay Mecklinger, uh, and you know Jay, yeah. um, good guy, uh, great guy, and 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 he was all over uranium on the on the on the short side when it was just going parabolic. He said this is going to end poorly, and he certainly was correct with that statement. Uh, but you know the Denison mines, the world, Cameco, uh, you just couldn't get enough uranium stocks in your portfolio. There was what was considered a nuclear renaissance, and they they looked like tech stocks. The charts looked like tech stocks. Not as parabolic as Bitcoin, but certainly very, very parabolic. So uh, I'm, I'm pleased you kept your eye on it uh, since the uh, Fukushima uh, uh, crash and, and subsequent lower lows thereafter, but you seem to catch a bit of a turn. Uh, well, you're absolutely right. The, um, the the great rise actually solved the problem of uh, of higher prices. They say the best cure for higher prices is, um, or the best cure for not enough supply is higher prices. And what happened was that... But yeah, well, yeah, the best cure for high prices is higher prices. Well, that's correct. Right. And uh, in terms of the supply came on, and uh, it actually created one of the greatest bear markets in uh, in commodity history when all these stocks got absolutely crushed. And then it was actually, when it was combined with the fact that uh, all the w- nuclear warheads that they were decommissioning yep. all also came in and flooded the supply. So you not only did you have this previous bull market that encouraged a lot of new mines, but then you combined it with the fact that all these nuclear warheads were coming and it set up just one of the greatest bear markets and the 
uranium stocks have been left for dead for just years now. It's just been, a, it's uh, where money goes to die is, has been uh, uranium stocks. I wonder what Trump thinks about uranium. We know what he thinks about coal. And we had a physicist on air with us uh, who discovered the hole in the sea ice. And uh, we spoke about energy and, of course, about uh, climate change and the likes. And uh, he, he was quite bullish on uranium in, term, in terms of it solving uh, power demand as, as probably one of the best alternatives. Certainly during the nuclear renaissance, all of the uh, uh, bullish uh, camp uh, and pro-nuke were, 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 were touting their uh, horns, but then Fukushima occurred and the bears came back and the the anti-nuclear establishment rose with some dominance. And they're saying, you know, Japan may may never refire these uh, nuclear reactors that they have. Well, well they say when Trump actually was first elected, that was a good bounce for uranium. Everyone thought that was well, you're, maybe, maybe a good catalyst. But uh, You're absolutely correct because when he came out, he actually said that he was going to stop selling the extra uranium from the decommissioned warheads. And that was actually what caused a rally in the early Trump administration. Right. But then basically the fundamentals kicked in again. And the reality is that there's too much supply. So, so going back to supply restraint, that's, that's right. what the market thought. Right. And now it sounds like Cameco is cutting back supply. Well, yeah. And that's the news that was this week that happened was the Cameco announced kind of out of the blue um, that they were going to shut down two mines and, and uh, up in northern Saskatchewan. And it's sad for the people that are going to be there. It's 850 jobs that are going to be lost. But in terms of writing the balance of the demand supply situation, that's actually an important step. They reduced almost 15% of the world's um, uranium supply in that by closing those two mines. So it's uh, you know one of I have. They're taking out fifteen percent of the supply. That's that's correct. That. And I was going to say, and then uranium was actually up about ten percent. That's correct. On, some, the, on that day, I have a I have a pal that owns a uranium mine. A kind of my mysterious uranium friend, and he said it's like taking. Imagine if OPEC took fifteen million barrels per day off the market. Wow! It was the equivalent yeah, of that. When they cut, it's like maybe one, two, three percent. Yeah, and that's a lot. Because uranium itself, it does not trade like crude. Crude is an international commodity, and and, and it can find uh, best prices in market just by moving it by tanker. Uranium is a very different market because many said on Bay Street back during the mania that it was run basically by a cartel, three or four players barely trading in the spot market, yet a spot market existed. So very, very opaque uh, environment to you're, be able to gauge any kind of uh, forecasting ability. You're absolutely correct. And, and there is a small spot market, and there's actually a very interesting closed-end fund that owns actual uranium. So for you and I, we can't go out and buy uranium and trade it like we can, like uh, uh, crude oil futures or take delivery. Nobody can take delivery. You need to be a licensed, um, you know, by the government to be allowed to take delivery. But this uranium participation fund, the U on Toronto, it actually got licensed and, and you can actually own uranium through this closed-end fund. <laughs> Interesting, like, like GLD can hold gold? Uh, this can actually hold uranium. Y- yeah. Exactly the same. Mm-hmm. And the interesting thing about it is that you mentioned that the, the forward market is the actual liquid market, and you're absolutely correct. But the interesting thing is that the forward market trades much higher than the spot market. Mm-hmm. The spot market is basically flooded by all of these different sellers in terms of people that need to sell it today, like the... Right. The, and, 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 but and it's not... So no, this thing is sold in long-term contracts. The nuclear reactors buy this stuff for 10, 20, 30 years at a time. That's right. But the U, which is basically owns the um, the spot, is trading at, let's say, $24 equivalent right. uh, in terms of the spot. And the, and the forward contracts are being done so at... 10-year ten, ten forward trade. That's right. At how much? $40, $50. Yeah, so almost twice higher. the price. Yeah. That's right. Yeah. Hang around with us, Kevin, because we're going to switch gears and talk millennial right after this. 
Don't go anywhere. There's more great show right after this. You're listening to Hi-Fi Radio from the AM640 Studios in Toronto. Talking about my for the love of money, Hi-Fi Radio with Wolfgang Klein. Talk Radio, AM 640. Yes, Stutter was intentional, apparently, Roger Dolphy said, just to make it fit the lyrics. Recorded in 1965, my generation, the year I was born. And here we are to speak about millennials. Uh, Kevin Muir, author of The Macro Tourist, says millennials are no different than other generations. Yeah, right. So what do you make of it? Are they the same? Are they different? I think they're the same, my friend. Well, they definitely seem to take pictures of their food more than I do. <laughs> that's how I... Yeah, but film was so expensive. That's, that's my for test it. for when I, I want to ask someone if they're a millennial or not. I ask them, do you take pictures of your food? And, <laughs> and, and that generally kind of weeds them out. Now, Jack, what did you tell me? Again, it is Remembrance Day about millennials. Oh, millennials. Um, yeah, yeah, good morning. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you. <laughs> Welcome to the show, Jack. Jack Hartley, or folks. Just like to join us. Actually, brisk, the, brisk morning. Uh, millennials are actually out paying their respects more than any other generation, whether it's, uh, I think, the baby boomers or Generation X. Generation X is actually the worst uh, for Remembrance Day attendance, uh, according to Stats Canada, I believe, this year. Isn't that incredible? Yeah. Well, so that's nice. Yeah, it's, it's a positive they, outcome. They, millennials have heart. Yep. No, you're absolutely right. They're, in a lot of ways, they're terrific so they are, generation. They are, they are different. Yeah. No, they, they are a little different. I have a question for you. What do you think the biggest generation is right now? I would say it would be the millennials. Yeah. yeah. Most, I, I think a lot of people mistakenly believe that it's the baby boomers. Yeah. No, no. I, I study demographics. I'm yeah. a huge believer in demographics, as is Jack. And you know something? It's been easy as follow the boomers. Whatever the boomers are about to do, just get behind it and, 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 and back up the truck. Real estate, recreational real estate, retirement homes. You heard me there, boomers. Retirement homes. That's right. That's what you're looking at right now. And retirement home stocks are doing well. Chartwell is a good performing stock. But the theory that we are supporting here, Tony Dwyer, one of our strategists in the United States for about a jack three, four years, has been showing us this chart about the baby boomers boomers and their kids turning 30. Uh, as millennials turn 30, guess what? They become normalized. They buy homes, they get married, they have kids. Jack's going to say not necessarily in that order, and I'm going to agree, but they do all of the above. They form houses. And when you fill a, when you buy a house, you got to fill it up with stuff. Maybe they're buying condos from, from our friend, Mr. Lamb, smaller stuff, but stuff nonetheless. No, you're absolutely right. I think in Canada, though, we have a slightly different situation than the U.S., in the U.S., they experienced, uh, like, the the millennials sat and watched their parents get destroyed in the real estate market in the, in the mid-2000s. So they've been much more hesitant to buy houses and to create those household formations that, we, that you were talking about. And I think... You, you believe that's the reason why? Because their parents got hurt in the market in 2000? Oh, I think that that's a, a very big part. They sat around and they, they watched. They, were, they would have been, they'd be 10 or 15 at the time. I know, but I think that they sat and watched the, the, the payments and they saw their parents lose houses. And I think that it's, it's, it's the Americans suffered um, a wound, a, a collective wound. The Americans lost houses in 2007. Yeah. And, right. and, and I think that that has been slow. So in Canada, many of the millennials have been actually quick to go out and buy houses. And 
in the states, if you go look at the amount of millennials that have bought houses, they've been very slow. They've been slow to, to make to make get married. They've been slow to buy houses. They've been slow in everything. They're, 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 they're just as quick to have kids. I get. I, I think they're still having kids. Um, like they are. Not, I say the other thing that's happening is the net worth of uh, Americans, young Americans, millennials. Um, is not as high as Canadians. And it's because of exactly what Kevin's talking about. They've not got exposure to the housing market. There's been a really good, obviously, housing market here in Canada. It's been going hmm. on for the last, well, 15 years at least. Uh, and we weren't uh, we weren't cut as bad by the 2007, 2008 So you think recession. our millennials are wealthier than American millennials? It's a fact, yeah, for really? sure. Really? Yeah. 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 And so, but now, I think this op- offers an opportunity for us because these American millennials, they've been slow, but they're not different. They're going to go out and they're going to get married. Well, they might not get married, but they're going to have kids. They're going to make houses and they're going to they're going to be buying houses. And if you go look at the amount of uh, money or capital that's being put into housing in the U.S., it's at a, a kind of a seventy year low in terms of the percentage of GDP because they had such a big oversupply that basically nobody was going buying houses. And and so there was this terrible bear market. And now all of a sudden we have the millennials that the greatest, the, the biggest age group right now is 26 year old millennials. Well, they're about to enter prime house buying years. And at a time when there's very little supply in the US. Hmm. So I actually think that you should have a look at the home builders. The home builders have been a sector that have been long left for dead. Nobody's yeah, looked yeah. at it, and uh, you know it was it was a it was a bear market, and nobody everyone's busy buying Fang stocks and all these other stocks, and and the home builders are, are something that's it's going to be another cycle just like we've had in the past. Yeah, home, they, they, home building down the states right now, I believe, is below even like replacement for the cycle, right? So t- turning up and the, not, not even including the fact that you've got millennials accelerating in the next call it five years mm-hmm. uh, into that household formation that we're talking about. Yeah, because I, I think uh, according to Tony's work, about 3 million Americans are going to begin turning 30 each year for the next 10 years. Uh, I think it might peak at about 4 million people. So uh, certainly that's going to create demand. Uh, the ITBs of what you're referring to, that's the ETF. Uh, it gives you a bunch of whole building stocks in America. Jack and I were long that about two years ago, a year and a half ago. We were early to that trade, gave it up, and uh, lo and behold, you brought it back to our attention way higher than where we sold it. But uh, Kevin, hang around. I want to ask you a few more questions. We're just going to pay the man. Right after this. Stay with us. There's more shows still to come. You're listening to Hi-Fi Radio from the AM640 Studios in Toronto. Hi-Fi Radio with Wolfgang Klein. Talk Radio, AM640. The band is called Fang. California is where they're from. Broke up in 1989, apparently. Singer was charged with killing his girlfriend, did some time in prison, Sam McBride, and apparently started up a band in prison. Obviously, the band was respected. Nirvana even covered one of their tunes. Our new man working the board, Mike Downey, gave us that song from the band Fang. I think of Fang as Facebook, Amazon, Netflix, Google. Jack thinks of Fang the same way. Bay Street, Wall Street, that's how we think of Fang. And Kevin's going to talk to us about Fang. Fang has been all the rage. If you own some Amazon, you're making money. Own some Netflix, you're making money. Kevin Spacey, probably not so happy there, but hey, life goes on. Google, of course, doing very well, and Facebook's doing very well. So Fang has been driving the S&P and the NASDAQ. NASDAQ's up, with some, 20 25% year to date. Uh, so those, those growth stocks are driving it. 
so much so that the, uh, the the Chicago Mercantile Exchange is now going to be issuing futures on FANG. That usually spells a top to me. Uh, but on the flip side of, of, of momentum and growth stocks are Warren Buffett-type businesses, value stocks. Jack and I own both FANG and we own some value. We take a barbell approach. Uh, we don't want to put all our chips on red or, or black. We like to sort of split them every now and then. And so our value trade's not working so well, but we're clipping some dividends. You know, our telecom stocks trading at 13 times earnings are down about 18% on the year, but we're being paid about 5.5%. Uh, well, I, I say we had some good value stocks at work for us. Air Canada was trading at uh, five times EBITDA. Had a double out of that. And then we also had uh, some forestry stocks, West Fraser Timber. So some of the old school stocks have done you know quite well for us. But like you said, uh, you know the telcos, the the medical device companies, uh, the big dividend pairs have been a little uh, little laggards, I guess, relative to to Fang this year. Well, I think so. Yeah. So so Kevin, what, what's your take? Fang versus value, right here. Well, I think that one of the things we should think about is that the fact that many of the hedge funds that practice value investing are having a terrible time. There's uh, one of the most famous hedge funds is a guy named um, David Greenhorn, or I mean David Greenhorn from. Um, from Green, no, David sorry. Einhorn. Uh, David yep. Einhorn from Greenlight Capital, mixing it up. That's right. And uh, he uh, is often been kind of the godfather of modern day value investing. He picks stocks that are cheap, mm-hmm. that are value, and then he goes and shorts the high momentum big names. And he's been for a while shorting what he calls his bubble basket. And his Ooh. bubble basket looks just like the Bang. Fang stocks. Ooh. And he's been getting crushed. And he recently wrote a letter where he basically questioned whether this style is still applicable. And and it was a little bit self-reflective, and I'm not sure how serious he was. But it, it reminded me very much of a time in 1999, early 2000, when another famous uh, hedge fund manager by the name of Julian Robertson who managed Tiger Investments, um, did the same thing. He actually quit his fund, and he wrapped it up basically in uh, March of 2000, right at the lows. And if you go look at a chart of growth stocks over value stocks- Since then. Yeah, and you look at a ratio, you'll see that 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 March time when uh, Robertson closed his fund was the low. From there on- Value stocks outperformed. And since 2007, value stocks have been getting crushed versus, or 2008, have been getting crushed versus growth stocks as everyone chases the, the, the FANG stocks and, and uh, the, the Teslas of the world and all of those kind of high-flying momentum names. And we're having more and more of these value stocks that are just being left for dead and nobody's interested and you know we talked a little bit about uranium you know when that uh, the fellow that uh, ran the uranium mine the Kamiko uh, president said it was cheaper for him to buy right. uranium on the open on the, market, on the open market yeah, than to mine it. it yeah yeah and these are the kind of anomalies that are just happening with these other companies that are just nobody cares nobody wants them and if you are an investor i think your barbell approach is terrific and if you actually want to do any kind of switching, selling some growth names and buying some value names down here makes a lot of sense. Yeah. Well, we, we certainly uh, bought some value, but we're, Jack and I are very long right now. Uh, yeah. We bought a little, actually, Roger's Sugar uh, yesterday. Um, it pays us a 5.8 dividend yield. Uh, it's right beside the studio here, right past <laughs> Sugar, so I, I'm biased to it, the, the, the odor of the sugar cane. I actually like it. Jack doesn't so much. Yeah. You um, can also buy well, ETFs. They're value versus growth. They're style ETFs as well. 
Yeah. So you don't need to you don't need to go pick your own value names. You can you can act you can trade the actual um, ETF that has those style ch- uh, choices made for you. Well, it's good to be style agnostic because if you don't want to be a uh you know, typecast put into one style. And if your style is out of favor, whether it's growth or value, um, you know, those hedge fund managers that you're talking about, those value managers, they're underperforming and they're they're losing assets because of it. Well, you're absolutely right. But is that, you know, a problem or is it an opportunity? Well, exactly. That's why I would say it's actually good to have a, a barbell approach because you participate in the upside with yep. some of these FANG stocks and some of the momentum there. And like you said, you can cy- cycle some of that money back into some of the more value type names, you know, talking about uranium and, that uh, and you do some balance. is at trough levels. You do some balancing. If you were lucky enough to own the FANG stocks from way down low, I think that they've almost doubled in 2017. If you look at them as a basket, if you were lucky to own some, peel some off up here and maybe go buy some cheap value names. Well, what do you think in terms of Trump and taxes and uh, deferral? Uh, uh, there, thereof in terms of p- putting off uh, uh, selling stuff this year for, for hope of a lower tax rate next year? Well, I, I think that's definitely happening. And that's been one of the reasons that the stock market has been flying is that there's been a lack of supply because a lot of people that are sitting on big gains are assuming that they're going to be taxed later. I mean, uh, yeah, the lower, Senate actually uh, came out uh, yesterday, or I guess it was Wednesday, and they were saying that it's going to be pushed out potentially even to 2019. So it uh, could be sitting on it a little longer than you think. Well, do, do you think Trump's going to get uh, any kind of tax reform through? Uh-huh. <laughs> I know. <laughs> Tough one. I, I think it's going to be um, it's it's going to be minimal, and it's not going to be as much as the market expects. In, in the interest of time, Kevin, I want to ask you one final question. Uh, let me ask you. I'm going, to, I'm going to call you now a tape reader, which are, aren't doesn't matter. But in terms of looking at the tape, uh, how does it feel to you? Uh, what do you think for the next twelve months? How how, how can we make some money? Well. I'm not sure about the next 12 months. I do know for the next quarter or so, this is one of the most overbought, enthusiastic, exuberant markets I've seen ever. Um, I, I had been bullish and 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 talking about the fact that we might melt up because of the central bank induced printing, mm-hmm. and you know I've been saying that for the last year or so. And most of the time when I said that, people gave me all these reasons why I was wrong, mm-hmm. and and told me that there's no way that's going to happen. Valuations are too high, and now that it's finally happened, everybody is telling me about the inevitability of us going even higher. Uh, And the interesting thing about this is it's happening at the very time when the central banks are actually pulling their foot off the gas. Some of them are. Yeah, some of them are. And um, and when you look out, you know, six months, there's going to be less monetary stimulus. And... I think it makes sense to you know book some gains, to write some pink tickets, and 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 to make some sales up here. Interesting. Well, you know something that's what makes the market bulls and bears, and uh, it's been a decent year. Uh, what 2018 has in store, I don't know, but it is the second year of a presidential cycle, and that too tends to be a little more challenging uh, for the market. Uh, seasonal strength is upon us. Everyone knows that. That causes me concern. Oh boy, it is. Just a wonderful, wonderful puzzle that we all get to play with each and every work day. Kevin Muir, an absolute pleasure having the show. We can't wait to get you back. Hi-Fi Radio, AM 640. More great show coming up right after this. Stay with us. There's more show still to come. You're listening to Hi-Fi Radio from the AM 640 studios in Toronto. For the love of money, Hi-Fi Radio with Wolfgang Klein. Talk Radio, AM 640. Yeah, thanks for hanging around. Wolfgang Klein here. Hi, Fi Radio. A little prince for the fidelity part of the show. Party like it's 1999. 
A few months thereafter, the Nasdaq peaked at around 5,000 and went into a tailspin. Uh, hey, 17 years later, Nasdaq came all the way back and is parting like it's 2017. If you own FANG stocks, you've made some money this year. Uh, Mike Walkley on the line here to talk to us about uh, Apple and uh, equally so um, Avago, Avago, which we call Broadcom, Broadcom, which is buying Qualcomm. Uh, if this deal goes through, Mike, it'll be the largest tech acquisition in history. Yes, it would. Um, we have a buy on, on both companies, and uh, we think both stocks you know, continue to work independent of a deal. And uh, you know, we, we would continue to own both stocks as we see large accretion and potential of both stocks you know, should the deal go through. This would be a huge deal with lots of regulatory concerns, but you know, we think the most positive thing for the deal to support our positive Qualcomm thesis is the amount that Broadcom bid. We think at shows there's underlying value to Qualcomm's licensing business that has led to the stock being depressed because they're in a dispute with Apple who stopped paying them uh, royalties on phones right now. So, How long ago did, that, did, did, did uh, Apple stop paying Qualcomm? It's been almost a year now since yeah. Qualcomm right before. You know, Qualcomm's actually trying to buy NXP, which is one of the larger semiconductor d- deals ever, and then this is a whole new level. Um, so Qualcomm was about, you know, about to buy NXP, the stock got north of 80, and then all of a sudden Apple went into a dispute, stopped paying Qualcomm, and the stock's fallen all the way into the 50s um, since then. We, we've, we've had a buy on Qualcomm because our thesis was this was a negotiating ploy, and Apple will eventually settle with Qualcomm, not destroy their licensing business. So we thought the stock was undervalued, and we look at Broadcom's bid as you know, showing our thesis was correct. <laughs> and they're both basically, it's gonna be a, is it going to be a merger of equals? They're both $100 billion companies, roughly. Yeah, so it's uh, it's definitely a, a merger of equals, and you know, because the ticker's AVGO and you call it Avago, that used to be the company. Avago did a merger of equals with Broadcom. Part of the deal is Broadcom, the Avago management really took over, but the Broadcom had a better known brand than Avago for their products. So they changed the name of the company to Broadcom, so that's how Broadcom came to be. And now um, the CEO of Broadcom, who's done a, a, sl- a bunch of very successful M&As. He's now trying to buy Qualcomm, which would create just a, a powerhouse company, in our opinion. You would look at a company extremely well-positioned as you head to 5G. Broadcom has very unique technology for filtering that's going to be more necessary in 5G phones. And Qualcomm, every time there's been a new air interface standard, they that's their bread and butter. That's why they invest, they invest money on the connectivity or the modem and everything we know in the industry. Qualcomm's well ahead for 5G. So the combination of the two would be a you know extreme powerhouse, especially in the wireless area. It's interesting. Well, you certainly have helped Jack, Jack and myself, and obviously, therefore, our clients out a lot uh, with the, I'm going to call it Avago trade, because we've been long Avago Broadcom. Uh, for well over a year, we made a lot of money on that trade. So, and you, you, we keep calling every quarter, uh, Mike, should we hold the stock or sell it? We keep saying, hang on to it. And we have, and it keeps going higher. Uh, Jack wants to uh, pipe in here. Yeah, just in the fine details of the offer that Broadcom made, they said uh, they would take uh, take over Qualcomm with or without uh, the NXPI deal closing. Um, just wanted to get your take on that. What do you think? I think it shows the hubris, not the hubris, just how smart the CEO of Avago is or of Broadcom. So Hawk Tan is basically telling the activists, so there's activists involved, you know, led by Elliott Capital and others, trying to force Qualcomm's hand to pay a, a higher premium for NXP than the $110 bid that's out there. Broadcom is saying, you know what, 
we want Qualcomm with or without NXP. We'll just take the cash they've set aside by NXP if it doesn't go through. But there's no way, you know, as part of this deal, we're going to pay NXP shareholders more. So I think that's, that's part of what's behind it, just saying, you know what, these activists get out of the way. If either you tender your shares to us as part of Qualcomm or you go back to a standalone company. And, you know, there's some risk to that. So I think that's part of the game theory there. And I think for regulatory reasons, it might be easier to buy Qualcomm without NXP because that adds a whole other level of regulatory items. And, you know, NXP was for sale and Broadcom already passed on it once. So I think those are all the reasons they say with or without NXP. But NXP is so close to closing and this deal will take over a year. I think that's why they, they, they are offering the same price with or without NXP. Either they take the Qualcomm cash or they take, um, you know, the NXP assets as part of Qualcomm. So do you think the activists are getting the message? Because the, the, the Qualcomm deal for NXP was 110. It's still trading at 116. So why, why the delta there? Yeah, this is where, you know, Matt Ramsey covers NXP, but, you know, Matt and I are very close, as you guys know. We work as a team. Sure. Basically, what's happening with NXP is the, the stocks has gone up so much that people look at the earnings and feel like the stock's undervalued, just pure on math. But part of the reason NXP earnings are so high is they've admittedly so under-investing in R&D because they said in our roadmap, the reason we need to sell to Qualcomm is we need Qualcomm's digital expertise to make our roadmap work. So it's, it's kind of inflated earnings because they're really not spending the R&D necessary to, to be a standalone company. So, but, you know, the activists just look at the stocks, the multiple on earnings and say the stock's too cheap. So, so some, some believe if the deal doesn't go through, the stock would still trade these levels on their own valuation, whereas we feel like it's a, kind of an overinflated earnings. So, that, you, you know, so that's why we believe um, not, there's not a likely bidder and we think the stock would actually fall should, should one of the deals fall through. Interesting. Uh, Mike, look, hang around. We're going to pay the man, but we want to talk to you a little bit about Apple right after this. Money. Stay with us. There's more show still to come. That's what I want. You're listening to Hi-Fi Radio from the AM640 Studios in Toronto. That's what I want. We're Sergeant Pepper's Lonely Hearts Club Band. We hope you will enjoy the show. For the love of money, Hi-Fi Radio with Wolfgang Klein. Talk Radio, AM 640. Well, welcome back to the show. Hi-Fi Radio, AM 640. Jack Hurdle in the studio to help the cause. Mike Walkley on the line. He's Canaccord's tech analyst and a good friend of ours. He covers chip stocks. He covers Apple. Hey, uh, Mike. Jack's been wondering, um, have you had a stroll through Apple Park, this $5 billion park that they've built for their employees? I haven't had a chance to uh, to actually go to the park yet. I've seen the construction going on, but I have not been in it yet. Well, what's the purpose of this? Uh, it was Steve Jobs' kind of vision to create this amazing workspace. So it was one of the last things he designed before he passed away. So it's part of his vision they followed through on. And, you know, when you're a 900 billion market cap company, I guess you can afford such an extravagant campus. And they believe it will make for a great workplace for their employees to keep creating innovative devices. Yeah, it's, it's in California. It's a 175-acre park. Uh, it's going to house, what, some 12,000 employees in this 2.8 million square foot complex, uh, a little natural refugee, uh, according to Steve Jobs. Uh, you have to get out there, Mike, to take take a day off next week. Just tell, tell them, you know, Wolf and Jack can be okay to do that. And let us know what the park's like. I'm sure you've gone to it's Central Park. Market, it's market research. <laughs> yes. I'm, I'm, I'm very, very curious. You know, the company's worth, like you said, $900 billion. It's almost a trillion dollar company. It is the most valuable company in the world. Um, and they're building, I think, one of the most valuable parks in the world right now. Uh, so the what are we waiting for here with Apple? What's all the hoopla that we're looking for? to yeah i think it's just uh 
upward revisions from street estimates and in strong upgrade cycles. So, you know, the 10 launch, the initial sell-through has been very strong. So there was a worry, you know, maybe not worry in the stock price, but there was a concern with the stock at, you know, these highs that a $1,000 plus phone, there wouldn't be great global demand for such an expensive phone. Uh, 1400 Canadian, my friend. Yeah. 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 We, we have deals up here. No, so, exactly. So, but saying, when, when is the phone? When are we going to actually see the products? I know the pre-orders are in. So when when oh, when will okay. I see the newbies walking around with their phone to show us how cool they are? Uh, you should see them already. So there were people out the doors last uh, last Friday, a week ago. Today was when people are getting their first phones. Um, I have a millennial who works for me, and <laughs> you know he stayed up all night to get one, and he loves to walk around showing off his new phone. So it's certainly certainly that status symbol must have thing for for that type of uh, generation, and, and he's an example of it. He's, he's willing to buy a $1,400 Canadian phone or 1200 U.S. phone, and uh, he loves it. How old is he? He's 32, 33. Oh, 30. Yeah, because I asked my, my son, who's in high school, uh, he's 15, Sebastian, and I said, Sebastian, are any of your friends buying the new phone? And he said, yeah, they are. Uh, I said, are you kidding me? But they were buying, the I think, the 8, not the 10. Like, they're, they're, they're the one that came out two months ago? Exactly. So, yeah, yeah the 8 is... A nice solid upgrade to to the current phones. It's still you know fairly high priced, but it works with the home button. It works like you're used to, and it's a nice solid upgrade with better processor speeds, better camera, etc. But the 10 is the game changer, and the expectation is it, it seeds the market. Next year they'll have tiers of these higher end phones, and you know they've invented a new category, the, the you know the over thousand dollar smartphone that so far the consumers seem willing to pay if that mix continues to get stronger the gross margin dollars per phone are higher the asps are higher um and you know the street probably is too low on those type of assumptions and in, in future earnings power so that's what's that's what's driving the stock higher now um so mike you know, cover, covering the handset industry for 20 years you know i'm getting old here but uh what we've always learned is the first three weeks uh, try it you got to be patient if you extrapolate the first three weeks data almost every new phone is going to be a great new phone so it's going to be interesting to see kind of post holidays and into the march quarter how sustainable this is but so far the early returns are very very strong sales for these products they're selling them as fast as they can make them mm-hmm. hey mike um just with the launch last friday uh you must have been busy i guess the, the following weekend with what they call a teardown in the industry <laughs> um yeah who, who are the big chip winners and the big content winners in the new iphone uh, 10 yeah, so it goes back to... Uh, and I guess before you do that, what is a teardown? What is it that, what, uh, if you could explain that to the audience? Sure, so a teardown is you literally have these uh, uh, couple different companies that, that literally will wait in line, get the first phones in Australia when they, you know, so that's the first market that opens with the time zones. They will get it. They will uh, get out their toolkit. They will slowly untake the phone. They'll take pictures and then they'll list who's products are powering the phone and then Wall Street relies on these teardowns to kind of make decisions who's the winners losers on this version of iPhone versus you know prior generations given you know you're going to sell probably 250 million plus iPhones next year yeah, it's a lot of semiconductor wow. content so that that that's the purpose of the teardowns interestingly enough since you started your you know, our conversation before the advertisement break on Broadcom Broadcom's you know in my universe the big winner um you're kind of going back to you guys owning it so long. We made it our top take all the way back in 2013 because they have this unique filtering technology that you really need in high-end smartphones because what Apple does is they pack in all these different frequency bands so when you travel the world, your phone works everywhere. You can get LTE in China and India and U.S., et cetera. But by putting all those signals into a phone, if you don't have good 
filtering technology to make sure those filters, you know, the signals don't cross each other and, and, and make your phone not work. You need this high-end filtering. Broadcom has a proprietary technology that dominates that market. So that, that was our thesis to make it a top pick. It worked out certainly well. The stock was in the 30s then, and now um, the CEO has added even more value because that took up the market cap of the stock, and then they went on a buying spree, and they're very, very good at M&A, um, going all the way back to this Qualcomm. It would be the biggest acquisition in tech history if, if they're able to you know, close this deal. Do you think it's going to go through? I, I literally think it's a coin flip. I think the yeah. Qualcomm board, you know, we wrote about this. We think the Qualcomm board probably rejects it because just the fact that Broadcom bid, it kind of shows that the, the licensing business is intact after they were able to settle with Apple. Um, and, I, and, you know, I think Qualcomm's a little worried about regulatory issues, et cetera, making it close. But, but Broadcom's pretty serious about it. They're already talking about putting, you know, members on the board, um, trying to do a hostile takeover. So I think there's a decent chance it goes through, hmm. but, uh, you know, pretty complex deal and we'll see how it happens. But if you tie it all together, the fascinating part of it, it will tie, even tie it into our president here in the United States side is I've covered Broadcom all these years. They put out a strange press release last Thursday, you know, basically like they always do. They have a slight beat of the quarter, kind of pre-announce the quarter, which just seemed bizarre because they usually just, they never pre-announce. They just kind of report a, a nice beat. And then two hours later, you know, President Trump here in the United States tweets that Avago or Broadcom's moving their headquarters back to the United States. Um, and then I talked to the company that night. They said one of the reasons they're moving back to the United States, they, they incorporated in Singapore after they came out of private equity for the favorable tax rates. So they said they're coming back to the U.S. because it's easier to buy U.S. companies. And then the very next day, the Wall Street Journal reports that Broadcom's going to make a hostile bid for Qualcomm. I caught all that. That happened. Yeah. Now, yeah. I was asking, why would they switch head office locations? That's just a pure cost. And the next day, bang. I was uh, the stock traded down on the news. And then when it, they yes, need, it did. It traded down the announcement, they're going to actually go ahead with the acquisition. It really popped. It, it rallied hard. Yeah. Very exciting. So, yeah, no, a real, Mike, look, a real pleasure to, to join us this Saturday morning to talk about Apple and these chip stocks. Uh, we're making money, my good friend. we got to thank you for your support and that. And uh, please keep us posted when we need to get out. We're going to hope you're going to help us guide the turn down. But we're not there yet. All right? No, let it ride. Let right, it ride. Let it ride. Let it ride. Look, you have a good one, Mike. We'll, we'll speak to you soon, pal. Thank Thanks, you very right. kindly. Yep. Bye. All right. Coming up next on Hi-Fi Radio, we're going to learn a little bit of private equity with Joseph Galley, the chairman of Pentor Finance, right after this. Don't go anywhere. There's more great show right after this. You're listening to Hi-Fi Radio from the AM640 studios in Toronto. Money. Hi-Fi Radio with Wolfgang Klein. Talk Radio AM 640. Welcome back to the show. Hi-Fi Radio AM 640. Our last set. Jack Hartle's here to help me out. We're going to talk private equity. Something which Jack and I have never really looked at too closely. Last week we spoke about crowdfunding. This week we're going to learn a little bit about private equity. They're sort of the same, only different. Uh, Joseph Galley is on the line here. He is the chairman of Pentor Finance. Uh, Joseph, I want to thank you for joining us. Oh, you're very welcome. Thanks for the opportunity to be here and to talk about uh, Private Capital Markets uh, Association and Private Capital in Canada. Well, yeah, so let's just speak about then uh, exactly what your firm does and, and, and the role you play in private equity. Yeah, so we're, we, um, if, if you'd like, if I could just take a step back and say there's kind of two big distinctions. You have public markets and private markets. Yep. And public markets would be, you know, stocks and bonds. That's what Jack and I do. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yep, what you read about in the newspaper and all that good stuff. 
And then the private markets are going to be everything else, for lack of a better definition. So think of it like an iceberg. And what I mean by that is one-tenth of the iceberg is above the water and nine-tenths of the iceberg is below the water Mm -hmm. that you don't see. The private capital markets is actually like that. And and if you took a rule of thumb, the private capital markets in Canada are probably a two-to-one ratio to the public market. Is that right? Yeah, you don't read about it in the papers. You don't see that. So, so the private so, pri- private business ownership, uh, private equity, is double the size of public markets. That's you know we don't have we've got some numbers, but anecdotally, it, it you know when you talk with all the experts and you start to pull, and we've actually at the Private Capital Markets Association, the PCMA, yeah. we actually have a project where we're pulling stats together. But rule of thumb. You're talking two-to-one ratio, private money to public money. Well, yeah, yeah, it, it makes sense when you think about small businesses, because small businesses really drive our economy, and I think it's 70% of... Of uh, employment. Uh, yeah, exactly. Correct. So it actually does it's make huge. sense, yeah. Okay, so so carry on. Yep. So so essentially, think of the iceberg uh, analogy. So you you know we see a little bit of it uh, that's above the waterline, but nine-tenths of it is below the waterline mm-hmm. that you don't see. And that's everything from... You were talking about venture capital, you're talking about private equity, you're talking about private lending, you're talking about mortgages, you're talking about R&D tax credits, you're talking about a whole slew of different products. We, we had a lady on the show, by the way, who did private lending for, um, shall we say, cosmetic surgery. Yeah, a lot, a lot of women. A lot of women took 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 part in that. She was the shadow banking in the she, uh, she was, veterinarian she, she, business yeah, too. Also, yes, but for, for veterinarian private banking, that's right. Yeah. So, so that whole space, that whole private space is really what makes, you know, if you took a, a macro look at things, the banks have shut down a lot of credit, right? It's very hard for small businesses or business owners or even individuals, especially with the changes in the mortgage regulations, and there's a storm coming January 1st for Canadians with respect to residential mortgages. All of those people are being affected, have a hard time accessing capital. So the private capital markets fulfill a liquidity requirement that's not taken care of or is not fulfilled in general. And, and people don't realize that. Because, so, again, yeah. one-tenth, nine-tenths under the water level. So with respect to the, 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 the changes to um, the amount people can borrow based on uh, the government protecting, quote-unquote, you and I, uh, is private lending going to pick up the slack to allow those purchases to continue to go through, do you believe? Yeah, it will. So you're going you're gonna to have two components to that space. If you want to talk about the mortgage space, you're going to have one is going to be refinances or what we call refi, mm-hmm. and the other is going to be purchases. So because of the, the new test, we call it the stress test and changes to the requirements to qualify a person for either a purchase or a refinance, those are going to become much more. I just had lunch. I just came from a lunch meeting and was talking with a partner of ours who deals with some of the major lenders, and they've all told them, Jan 1, expect your business to drop because the number of people that are going to be qualified is going to go down. There's going to be more rejection. So the private capital space, and that's where we play, and and we do mortgages in the private capital space in the province of Quebec, we work with partners to help them get back to a financial institution when they've been, they didn't meet the criteria initially. So you get rejected or you get, you know, you get bumped from a financial institution we finance them and help them to get back a year later to the financial institution. So it's like, it's like a bridge financing that you're offering? 100%. Good term. Bridge financing is exactly, I didn't want to get too sophisticated, but bridge financing is exactly what we do. We do short-term, 12-, 18-month financing. We're going to be more expensive than a bank would be, but we're providing access to a, you know to financing for a client that's not able to get financing from the bank because of these changes. And these changes are driven by the government and by OSFI, which which controls all the financial institutions in the country. Do you just lend in the province of Quebec or do you lend throughout Canada? No, we're primarily Quebec. We have some partnerships we're developing outside of Quebec. We're primarily Quebec. 
Hmm, interesting. Well, look, I, I, I want to I learn more about what you do and, and, and what your space is all about. But in each of the time, we are out of it, my good friend, Joseph. So, uh, Joseph Galley, uh, the chairman of Penter Finance. Uh, if you live in Quebec and you need to borrow some money and the banks aren't lending it to you, you may want to call Joseph a, give Joseph a call. He may be able to help you out. I want to thank you very much for tuning into Hi-Fi Radio this week. As Jack and I enjoy doing the show for you each and every week. And we will be right back at you next Saturday morning. Wishing you a great weekend. God bless. You've been listening to Hi-Fi Radio with Wolfgang Klein and Jack Hartle, Portfolio Managers at Canaccord Genuity Wealth Management. For questions about today's show or any money questions you need answered, email Wolf and Jack at WolfgangKlein.com. For the podcast of today's show, go to 640Toronto.com. New shows every week. Hi-Fi Radio, for the love of money. We'll see you next week.